So, welcome to Gospel Church, if, uh, if you've joined us since last time I got up and said that. Um, it's, it's a delight to have you here with us. Uh, you're joining us for our first sermon in the series we're going through on the revelation of Jesus Christ, uh, which I'm uber excited and terribly nervous about, uh, but it's okay, because we've got a good God with us who leads us through his word, and it's not just John here to do it. So... Uh, uh, actually, before I pray, let me, let me say something really quickly, is that um, uh, Phil, who was up here before, uh, mentioned how you kind of go to all of the songs and find out that they're all from Revelation, and, and I'm hoping that's one of the experiences, if you're walking through us through this, that you're going to have out of this series, as you go through Revelation, you're going to realise that this is the songbook of the church, that you know, if you've been in a church for more than two weeks, you've heard a song sung uh, from the book of Revelation that at least heavily references it. You know, just to, just, to, just to pan that out a little for you, if you know a song with the words holy, holy, holy in it, or worthy, 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 or king of kings, or hallelujah, which only comes up once in the entire New Testament in the book of Revelation, uh, or you know, speaking of the world being made new, everything being made new, then you know a book that's heavily draws on the book of Revelation. Congratulations. Uh, and I, I love it, because it just means you can go to a bazillion songs and be like, wow, I can worship God and see how it draws from God's word and how it points me towards him. That's not my sermon. I'm just going to be quiet. No, I'm not going to be quiet. I'm going to preach. But um, I'm going to stop saying that and pray for us. Jesus, uh, we come to you a people dependent, and yet you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. So we trust in you today to speak to us, to be lifted up, to reveal yourself to us, be unveiled to us today and as we go through this series. Help us to see Christ and to grow in knowing him. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to grab one. If you've got a digital version, that is fine. If you need a book, uh, there's a stack of Bibles on a shelf back there. Uh, but I thought I'd just start today by giving a quick little overview of my journey with the book of Revelation. Um, the first book of the Bible that I can remember, and if you know my memory, it's not that great, but the first book of the Bible I can remember sitting down and reading through intentionally, because I really wanted to, was the revelation of Jesus Christ. I was, uh, I was fascinated with it, uh, and I wanted to get it. I, I wanted to grasp what it had to say. You know, something about the mystery of it made it more enticing to me. So I read it, you know, and I can say with a high level of confidence that I did not get what was going on. I, I came out like, what? Um, Revelation can be a really confusing book to read, can't it? I mean, it's got, it's got a lady riding a multi-headed dragon. Uh, let's, let's be real. That's a little on the confusing side. Uh, and, and, you know, that state of curious but confused was basically where I stayed for a really long time. Uh, occasionally, I'd come back, I'd read again, I'd be baffled again, and, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd go away defeated for a bit and then repeat the cycle. Uh, and, and I wonder if you can relate to that experience personally, if you're a follower of Jesus. Um, or maybe, maybe for you, you've just avoided the book of Revelation. Um, you know, there's, there's plenty of reasons why people avoid Revelation. Uh, you know, you've been too intimidated by it. It's got a bit of a rep. Uh, you've seen divisions arise from people talking too much about it, perhaps. It doesn't seem like it could be relevant to you. It seems like a lot of it's about future stuff and, and not now stuff. 
Or maybe the, the emphasis on persecution in it makes you genuinely uncomfortable and, and a little bit on the scared side. It's understandable. Or maybe that's not you. I reckon, here's my theory, I reckon there's a 90-10 split in Christians uh, where 90% of us uh, don't know what to do with the book of Revelation and, and, and 10% of us can't get enough of the thing. Uh, but, but often... Uh, come out with some pretty interesting ideas walking out of the other end of it. Um, well, anyway, there was little young John, and I'd say I was a little bit of both of those things, the 90-10. Really keen to understand, completely lacking in understanding. You know, every now and then I'd figure something out and I'd be like, wow, there's a thing that I get now. But it was kind of like looking at a forest and only seeing three of the trees. Um, I, I, I didn't get the picture. And that was until just a few years back now, I sat down and listened to a solid biblical explanation of this book of the Bible, which did one thing that, to my shame, I had never done with the book of Revelation. It read it in its original context. Revolution. No, everything changed. Seriously. Suddenly, this was a book that was written to real people with a real message to those real people. And because it spoke to them, it could speak to me too. Suddenly, suddenly then, I understood everything in Revelation. Nah, nah, <laughs> of course not. Um, I, I wouldn't say there's a, a book, a, well, let's go with, I wouldn't say there's a chapter of the Bible that I, that I have absolutely everything that it has, give, has to offer. I think it's really brash to say otherwise, but I would specifically say, especially say, with a book where so many sincere followers of Jesus have disagreed so sharply for so long, I want to be clear, I do not have all of the answers when it comes to the revelation of Jesus Christ. However, with God's help, what I want to try to show throughout this series is that even if we don't understand every single detail in this book, if we read the revelation of Jesus Christ on its own terms, it does speak clearly a good message which we need to hear today. So today, we're looking at those first eight verses, and we're going to intro the book. Uh, so there's going to be a few more, what you might call, details today than we, than we usually go for to try and get our head around how we come at this book. But, uh, but first, I just want to look at uh, why Revelation. And I've left the clicker back there, and I'm just going to point at Deb when I want her to skip a slide, okay? So Deb, could you please? Why Revelation? Yeah? Maybe? Yeah, okay. It's not that important a slide anyway. I mean, we've kind of we've covered why not Revelation, right? It can it can seem like the more logical, the easier, the maybe responsible thing to put the book on the shelf and go read Romans, right? Um, but like a bombshell in the middle of our logic, like a hand grenade thrown into our, our little reasoning of not picking this book up, we, we look at this and it says in Revelation 1 verse 3, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And then right at the end of the book, right at the other end of the book, we read in Revelation 22.7, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Those who invest well 
in the book of Revelation have a promise here of blessing. God has said so, that you'll be blessed, that this book will bless you. Do we believe him? If we do, do we ever want there to be a day when it could be said of us that God offered us a blessing and we went, nah, no thank you, pass. No, right? I hope the answer is no. Uh, Revelation 22.10 says, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. Uh, Eugene Peterson helpfully paraphrases that to don't put it away on the shelf. Is that what we've done with Revelation? Is that how we've treated the promises and the, the words of God? And you know, this is not just some general promise of blessing. That's, that's not why we're coming at this. The revelation, as we'll see today and over the coming weeks, speaks powerfully to us today. It has truth for us, which I'm convinced we need to hear in our context. So today, as, as we introduce the revelation of Jesus Christ from its first eight verses, we're going to see three key questions get answered. Uh, and please, I just ask you, strive to listen today. Um, some of this is going to dive a bit deep. Strive to listen because it will bless you and help you to understand as you come to this book. Our three questions we're going to answer are, what sort of a book is the Revelation? How should we read it? Why do we need it? What sort of a book? How do we read it? Why do we need it? Even rhymes. Didn't mean to do that. Now, now, what sort of a book is Revelation? This is probably the most important question you can ask when you come to the Revelation. Uh, let me explain something that you already know, even if you don't know that you already know it. Texts. Books, written things, have genres, right? So, so types, if you will. Every, every time you read something, you do it with a set of rules based on what sort of a thing it is. So like you have, you have history, you have narrative, you have fiction, you have non-fiction, you have cookbooks, you have postcards, you have letters, you have political cartoons, and so on and so forth, right? Now... Let me, let me give you an example of why this is important. You, you open the Sunday paper and, and you get to a, a hand-drawn picture that depicts Joe Biden, uh, Biden, Biden, I've never known, and, and Vladimir Putin slicing up the world with like a carving knife, right? And for some reason, you don't hold your family close and start saying the final prayers waiting for the end. Why? Because it's a political cartoon, right? It's not a news story. And you know it's a political cartoon from experience. You know the genre, and therefore you don't panic. It's a dumb example, I know. But texts have genres. And we can only read those texts correctly if we read them like they were meant to be read. The same is true in the Bible. You know, you don't read the poetry as history, right? Now, you read it with historical anchor. It's, it's got a place in history where it was written, certainly, but it's not a historical text. When David writes the Psalms and he writes, my soul is in the midst of lions, I lie down amid fiery beasts. You know, we don't go, wow. Now, that one's got when David was in the cave at the top of the psalm. You know, we don't go, wow, there was some crazy stuff in that cave that just doesn't come up in the historical books. That's odd. No, 
we understand it to be a symbolic imagery representing the same events that we see in 1 Samuel 22 and 24, when David is on the run from Saul and he's hiding in the cave from him and his men, those fiery beasts. The Bible speaks in symbolic language, but, but you have to understand what sort of text you're reading to read it well. Now, the Revelation is somewhat unique in this regard because it actually has three genres. Stick with me here. You're tracking with me here. We, are, we, are we together so far? Okay. Uh, it's, it's got three. Yeah, if, you, if you get your head around this, it will help you to understand this book of the Bible and to drink in and to feast on what God has to give you from it. Isn't that worthwhile? So first, it's a prophecy. John says, right there at the start, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. Now, big note for understanding biblical prophecy. When we think of prophecy, we think of future telling. Right? That's, that's, that's how the modern understanding of the word prophecy. That's not how the Bible uses the word prophecy. The Bible uses the word prophecy not to give an order of events in the future, but to give a declaration from God. Prophecy comes from the eternal God, so it might speak about future events. It can, and it might not. Many of the Old Testament prophetic books don't speak future events. They just speak into the present. Depending on the, on the prophecy, right? But what makes prophecy prophecy is that it is God revealing his will to some of his people. Prophets are those people. And then it's things that they could not have known without him revealing it to them. Um, Daryl Johnson put this really nicely. He, he, he said, the heart of biblical prophecy is not look what's coming. It is thus says the Lord. John says they are to keep the prophecy. They are to do it. They are to do what this prophecy calls them to. The heart is a call to action, not a timeline of events. Second, the revelation of Jesus Christ is, and this is the tricky one, an apocalypse. Now, quick shout out, audience participation, right? What do you think of when I say the word apocalypse? Then there's literally what, and that's what I've got written. That's what Crystal said when I asked her the question. Like, end of the world, maybe some nuclear bombs, maybe powers of darkness rising to destroy, maybe an antichrist figure coming up just to, just to just add a little bit of salt to the equation. Um, make the recipe good. No, but, but, but none of that is what that word means, biblically. Okay? Stick with me here. It's, it's, a, it's a Greek word. It's apocalypsis. And, and it's, it's actually the first word of the book of Revelation. That's where we get it from. It means, it's translated in the ESV as revelation. It is the word uh, revelation. Or, or, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, this book is an apocalypse. And it's intentionally outlining itself as one. Now, that's tricky for us because that's a genre of books we don't really do anymore. You don't pop down to Dimmicks if they still exist. I live in the country now. Um, and, and, and pick up an apocalypse. You know, you head to the apocalypse section and pick up an apocalypse. Uh, it, it's not a thing. And, and as a result, our understanding of the word and of the genre is formed more out of Hollywood than it is out of the Bible. Um, 
But there are loads of apocalypses that were written before and after the time of John. And they kind of date right back to the apocalyptic elements that you find in things like the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. And I'm not going to drag you through all of the details of what an apocalypse is. I can point you towards some great reading on that. We're actually getting a few books into the church library for this. But here are, here are some of the things you really do need to know. Whilst our immediate reaction to it's the apocalypse might be, oh no, a first century reader getting this with the apocalypse written at the start would have gone, oh yes, oh great, give it to me. That's because an apocalypse is a revealing of unseen truth. It's the unveiling of what has been veiled. It's the opening up of what has before been concealed and bringing it out and displaying it. The actual word means unveiling. It's the same word we get in Romans chapter 8, verse 19, when Paul says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing, for the unveiling, for the apocalypsing of the sons of God. Same word. And that's, there's, there's, there's lots you can say about apocalyptic literature as a genre. For instance, that, that numbers in this carry great significance. Uh, they're great symbolic significance. So, so keep an eye out for things like fours and sevens and tens and twelves and, and their multiples and understand that they're usually not talking literally when, they, when, when those numbers come up. So for instance, when in verse four, he addresses the letter from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before the throne. Uh, he's not saying that God literally has seven spirits. Uh, seven is, biblically and, and comprehensively to the people of the time, a number of completeness. And the complete spirit of God, the fullness of God's spirit is writing to them. And there's lots more we could say here, but perhaps the most important thing to know about apocalypses is why they are written. This really helps us. The purpose of apocalyptic writings is twofold. And uh, can we skip to that quote slide I've got there? Thank you. Daryl Johnson says, he says, apocalyptic seeks to do two things. First, it seeks to set the present in light of the unseen realities of the future. For if we know what the future holds, it determines the choices we make in the present. Second, more importantly, it seeks to set the present in light of the invisible realities of the present. Seeks to set the present in light of the invisible realities of the present. The fundamental conviction of apocalyptic literature is that things are not as they seem. There is more to reality than meets the unaided eyes or ears. There is more to the present historical moment than we can deduce. And apocalyptic writing seeks to unveil the unseen reality of the present, to pull back the curtain on the present so that we see what is really going on. <clears throat> what the unseen realities of the present and the future are, that's what we're going to kind of dive into for the rest of this series, right? And we're we going to come back a little bit to that at the end of today. But, but just one other thing to say about apocalyptic. I know, I know we've gone on about this thing a bit, but it's important. Um, apocalyptic is usually very, very symbolic. Animals, you know, creatures, they're used to symbolise people and, and natural disasters are used to symbolise world events and these sorts of things. And, and in fact, the very first verse of Revelation, uh, where the ESV says, he made it known... 
He made it known by sending his angel to the servant John. Um, it's probably best translated as he signified it or he symbolized it by sending his angel because of an Old Testament allusion that is in that verse. And I raise that because sometimes we get uncomfortable with the idea that the Bible can speak symbolically. Uh, it's, I, I felt that discomfort before. But actually, if we're honest, we know it does, right? When God says in Exodus that he took the Israelites on eagles' wings out of the land of Egypt, we're not thinking Lord of the Rings here, right? He didn't send the eagles. It's, you know, in that psalm that I mentioned before, there weren't literally fiery beasts. It's symbolic language. And what's very important, what saves us from getting into trouble here, is that we take the texts of the Bible on their own terms, so when we read a historical text, like, say, the 50 chapters of Genesis, we don't go to that and go, well, this is symbolic language. You know, some bits of this is symbolic. No, it's clearly representing itself as a history, right? And when we read the Revelation, we allow it to be symbolic because that is how it is written to be read. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't mean anything, understand. Uh, symbols represent realities, uh, you know, for instance, the lamb with seven horns and seven eyes that we're going to run into in chapter 5, he represents a real saviour, Jesus, but it's a symbolic representation of him, right? All right, going on about genre a lot, sorry. Third genre, thirdly, and this is very important, the revelation of Jesus Christ is a New Testament letter. I know. It's, a, it's an epistle, that's the technical term. Um, and it, it, it starts and it ends just like every other New Testament letter. So, so, so Revelation 1.4 says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace and peace to you. Uh, and, and that should feel familiar, right? Because that's how Paul starts all of his letters. And that's how Peter starts his letters. And that's how John starts his letters, because it's a letter. Uh, and, and they don't say John, they say Paul or Peter, obviously. Um, you know, Revelation 22, 21, the last verse of the book says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Now that should sound familiar too, because that's how the letters end. This is a letter. The, the prophetic apocalypse is addressed to specific people in a specific situation. And just like with any other book of the Bible, if we ignore the original context of the readers, we risk grossly misunderstanding the book as a whole. We'll dig into it a little bit more as the weeks go on, um, but we should just lightly touch here on what was the context, right, for these original readers. Letters written to the seven churches of Asia Minor, real churches, actual people, right, pastorally written for their good, every, every chapter of the book. They're in, uh, they're in Asia Minor, uh, which today, until recently, we called Turkey, and which I have not got my head around the new pronunciation of. They changed it, if you weren't aware. Uh, these are churches that are in the midst of the late first century Roman Empire. Uh, it, it's at a time when the threat of persecution was looming large for many of these Christians. And it's at a time when there was constant pressure towards compromise. You know, the exact date of this book, it's, it's debated, but the earliest and the most reliable sources, they put it in kind of the mid-90s AD. This was a time when every aspect of life was affected by pagan religion and especially by a thing we call the imperial cult, the, 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 the religion that worshipped the emperor, Domitian. Your status, 
your freedoms to act, your ability to practice your trade, and, and almost every aspect of your life were constantly defined by your involvement in the imperial cult. And to refuse to be involved, to say, no, there's only one God and only one King of Kings, to refuse was to refuse to worship a false God, obviously, but it risked your livelihood. It risked the loss of your family. It risked the loss of your freedom. It could even mean the loss of your life, although that, that particular aspect was just getting started when this was written. But like, when you think about it, this makes sense, right? Because even John says right here that he was on the island of Patmos, right? Why is he on Patmos? He's on Patmos because of the declaration of the word and the testimony of Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a slave rock in the middle of the Mediterranean meant for mining for people who've been sent away because they were troublemakers. John's there because he declared Jesus and that didn't fit with the culture of the day. So there was a constant threat of persecution as the result of faithfulness to Jesus. And, and there was a constant pressure towards compromise as well. And into this context, John writes to call these churches, these real churches, to overcome through witness and through faithfulness. Not just in the first three chapters. The whole book is written to these specific Christians in this specific place for this specific purpose. Remember, it starts and it ends as the New Testament letter. None of it doesn't speak to them. Now, here's something that then needs to be said. Stick with me here. Some of you will be like, yeah, of course. Some of you will be like, if the whole thing is written for specific people, and I'm just going to nick a phrase from a fellow named Matt Chandler here, it can't mean for us what it didn't mean for them. Can't mean for us what it didn't mean for them. I mean, wouldn't it be mad? Actually, wouldn't it be mean for God to write a letter to specific Christians through, through the Apostle John, 22 chapters long, of which everything but the first three chapters and the last two chapters were completely irrelevant to their lives that time, and to say that they would be blessed as they read it? Consider this, you know, if I, if I wrote you a letter and said, you're going to be blessed in the reading of this, and then I talked about stuff that has nothing to do with you for the entire letter, wouldn't you be a bit gypped? Wouldn't you be a bit, maybe confused, maybe annoyed, maybe just not writing back? How do you obey a prediction that is still at least 2,000 years away from completion? You know, the last day stuff, they're going to be there for that. But, but what about all the rest? But if it's revealing unseen realities of the present, if it is written to let you know that things are not as they seem so you can persevere, you can continue on, you can be faithful, well, then it can be obeyed. So, how should we read the Revelation? Good one, Deb. You know, we understand now something of what sort of a book it is. It's a prophetic, apocalyptic, New Testament letter. How should we read it? And I just want to lay down three pretty simple principles uh, which the text itself gives us, but the shortest version of it is we read it on its own terms, right? And that's, that's going to be our rule. And, and any time you think I'm not doing that throughout this series, feel free to come and talk to me about that. But we read it on its own terms 
by reading with one eye on the rest of the Bible and especially the Old Testament. The book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, has 500 allusions or references to the Old Testament in it. Roughly. It's a bit more. Now, if you're like me, you hear that number and you're like, whoa, I wonder how many verses there are in the book of Revelation. And, and I'm really glad that you asked. 404. There is slightly more than one intentional reference to the Old Testament for every verse of this book. We've got we to gotta be fluent in the Old Testament to understand what's going on here, right? And it's interesting to think, you know, is that because of Jesus or because of John? And, and the answer is yes. <laughs> um, Jesus shows John images rich in Old Testament imagery. John sees these symbols, these images, these symbolic visions, and he describes them with the vocabulary that he and his readers would be well aware of as, as first century Christians, the Old Testament. John's not struggling to describe a modern invention he doesn't recognize. He sees what he says he sees. A lot of the time, the temptation's been to read the Revelation as um, kind of in light of modern events, current events, uh, to exegete it through the lens of the newspaper or the digital equivalent thereto, uh, to go, hey, that thing there, that sounds a little bit like this modern invention. Maybe John was just struggling to word it, you know, maybe he was just having trouble describing what he was seeing. Uh, but let's be clear, the Bible doesn't fail in its wordings. This isn't just the words of John. These are the words of the Holy Spirit inspired in John. We're just... <laughs> it's not the Bible failing in its wording. It's us failing to look in the right place for what the wording means. We're looking down at a paper when we should be looking to the Old Testament. Second principle. We read it on its own terms by not reading it chronologically. Now, some people are going to be like, what? But the point of Revelation is not to give us a chronological... If you feel scandalized by this, wait till the end, because I'm going to prove it to you. I'm not just going to ask you to take my word for it. It's not to give us a chronological order of past, current, or future events. Parts of the book speak about things that happened in the past. Parts of the book speak about things that happen in the present, especially for the original readers. Parts of the book do speak about things that will happen in the future. Parts of the book speak about all three at once. Parts of the book are written from an eternal perspective and actually don't have a reference in time. Helpful, right? But it's absolutely not provided in a chronological order. Listen to these words. Another, another, another participation moment here. Listen to these words, and anyone, shout out for me what day in history this is describing. Okay? The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Anyone, come on. Any ideas? Come on, how many days can you possibly think of when the sky, islands, and mountains will be destroyed? Like, it's not Tuesday, or it might be a Tuesday. The last, day. the last day, right? Revelation 6. <laughs> You're right, it's the last day. There's still 16 chapters to go after the last day in Revelation 6. And in Revelation 16, it happens again. We read Revelation 16:20, every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. Only for us to then encounter the end of the world a third time, and actually there's not only three.
Going to touch those today. A third time in Revelation chapter 20. In chapter 12, a woman gives birth to a male child who will rule the nations with an iron scepter, a rod of iron. Um, now, that's, that's a direct reference to Psalm chapter 2, which is the most well-recognized messianic psalm in the entire book of Psalms, right? It's talk and who's the Messiah? Jesus, right? And yet, that's in Revelation chapter 12. And, and that's a vision of the first Christmas, right? But in chapter 5, seven chapters earlier, we meet the Lamb who was slain, who was risen, who was reigning from the throne of heaven. You have to read it on its own terms. And its aim as an apocalypse is to help those reading it to see their present situation in light of the unseen realities of the present and the future. If we want to approach it on its own terms, there is one repeated phrase you do actually have to keep an eye out for. And the phrase is not, and then this happened. If it was a chronological book, it would be, and then this happened, and then this happened. Jesus was standing among the lampstands, and then heaven was opened, and then some horsemen went out, and then after that, some bowls got emptied, and I started feeling like breakfast, but, and so on. No, 40 times in the book of Revelation, the phrase, and I saw, happens. John is being given a series of visions, and they're not, they're not laid out as this will happen, and then this will happen, and then this will happen, and then this will happen. They're laid out as, I saw this, and then I saw this, and then I saw this. And what he sees next is not necessarily what happens next. So we ask not what happens next, but what did John see next? Third principle. We read it on its own terms by respecting the imagery of the book. Let's be honest, this is probably what you find scary about Revelation. It is such a big, loud book when it comes to images. Now, why does it do that? It's not just to make it difficult to read. Revelation isn't just a normal letter, but worded more inaccessibly. There is a reason for the imagery. Uh, there, there's a, an author, Richard Borkham, who's one of the most respect, respected scholars in Revelation today, and, and he, he puts it better than I ever could. He says, can we... To appreciate the importance of the imagery of Revelation, we should remember that Revelation's readers in the great cities of the province of Asia were constantly confronted with powerful images of the Roman vision of the world. Civic and religious architecture, iconography, which is the use of pictures with specific meanings, statues, rituals, festivals, even the visual wonder of cleverly engineered miracles in the temples all provided powerful visual impressions of Roman imperial power and the splendor of pagan religion. In this context, Revelation provides a set of Christian prophetic counter images which impress on its readers a different vision of the world, how it looks from the heaven to which John is caught up in chapter 4. The visual power of the book affects a kind of purging of the Christian imagination. Refurbishing it with alternative visions of how the world is and will be. The, uh, the imagery of the book 
is there because in a world full of images to the contrary, we need to remember vividly the truth, which is so much more than the lies. The imagery is there to cut through to our imagination, to cut through to something that grips us in a way that captures us like, like a plain normal letter doesn't, can't. It powerfully brings reality into view. Let me give you one quick example. Saying that Satan is evil is true, right? Like, like you'd want to hope so. Depicting Satan as a great red dragon who seeks to consume humanity and destroy the world and undo God's plans speaks the same truth in a way that grabs us differently, doesn't it? Now, Satan's not a dragon. It's not a literal red dragon, just like there's not a literal lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. But symbolically, he is grabbing us with the truth behind the symbol. You know, there is one main command in this whole book, which is repeated over and over and over and over, 26 times in the whole book. John says the same command. It's just one word, behold. Behold. Like we said, John keeps saying what he saw, and he calls us to behold, or better, look. The word the world isn't as it seems, and we need these images to help us to start to see it rightly. Look. So what we're not going to do here is try to boil Revelation down to kind of just propositional statements. We're going to take the truth from it, but we're going to embrace the way that the truth is communicated, which is through powerful images. So finally... Why do we need it? Now, hopefully now we have a bit of an understanding of the way that we should be reading this book and what sort of a book it is, and that will help us to approach it rightly. But finally, why do we need the revelation of Jesus Christ? The clearest and simplest explanation of what the revelation of Jesus Christ is for comes to us in, in the first verse of the first chapter of the whole book, where John writes, the revelation of Jesus Christ... That's, that's the first line. That's also the title of the book. The book's not called Revelation. It's not called Revelations. I keep accidentally calling it Revelation. I've tried not to. This, it's called the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation is given by Jesus and is about Jesus. And it is going to explain what is happening and what will happen in the world through the lens of Jesus. And if you're reading of Revelation doesn't point you at every turn to submit to the powerful kingship of Jesus and to love him more dearly and to worship him with greater joy, then you're reading Revelation wrong, I'm sorry. Through and through, the point of the book is that Jesus reigns and Jesus wins so his people can persevere and his people can be faithful and avoid compromise in a world that threatens to persecute them and pressures them to compromise. Notice, even in these opening verses, that message is just labored. Imagine, imagine for a sec, you're one of these first century Christians, right? And you're going to find them a bit relatable. Um, imagine, you know, how powerful this would have been to hear. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, 
the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Fun historical insight. At Roman political rallies, we've got a bunch of records of what they used to call out to Domitian. One of the things they would yell is Dominus et Deus Noster, Dominus Terrarum, Dominus Mundi. If you know Latin, you know I don't pronounce Latin. Literally, our Lord and our God, Lord of the earth, Lord of the world. Christianity is always a radically countercultural movement. It is, it is a revolutionary movement in a world that pulls itself away from God. Christianity says, no, we have one king. We declare that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth, not Caesar. To Jesus belongs the glory, not Caesar. To Jesus belongs the dominion, not Caesar. Jesus is reigning now, and Jesus will reign, and he will return. John gives the first command of the whole book. Did you see it there? Behold. Behold, he is coming on the clouds and every eye will see and every knee will bow to Jesus, not Caesar, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Sounds a bit drastic, doesn't it? It's a reference to Zechariah 12 verse 10, hence the Old Testament importance here, by the way. Zechariah 12 verse 10 promises that God will pour out a spirit of repentance and of mercy on his people. And, and John turns that and he makes it of every tribe and nation. God will pour out and they will weep because of his mercy. These aren't tears of judgment. These are tears of repentance. This is the point of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus is king. Jesus wins. So who are you going to worship? Can you see why this is relevant today? If they were surrounded by images which contradicted and tempted the early Christians, then what are we, right? We are bombarded. Today, the pressure to compromise is so great. The existing compromise between the church and, and the world is so great that we desperately need a vision of Jesus risen and reigning and calling us to follow in the path of the crucified lamb. We need to see how evil evil is, how awful it is, how destructive it is. We need to see how good our God is, how mighty he is, how well he has saved us and how much he has securely held us and will bring us home. And not just because of the risk of compromise, right? Like that's the easy one to point out in our culture. But increasingly our culture is making moves to go down the path of persecution. We're not there yet. Let me be clear here. You know, personally you may have had people persecute you in like a relational sort of way. There are nations where loss of family, loss of freedom and loss of life are present realities for followers of Jesus Christ. You know, try being a Christian in Afghanistan today. We're not persecuted, not seriously or systemically, not yet. 
But if it happens, as the Bible speaks to us repeatedly about happening and anticipates, will we be ready? Will we be equipped to be faithful witnesses after the likeness of Jesus, the faithful witness? Will we be equipped to conquer by the blood of the Lamb and the word of his testimony because we do not love our lives even unto death, as Revelation chapter 12 says? Or will we fold? We're going to move our primary trust to, to something else, to political powers and, and, and relegate Christianity to a thing that's in a box in my room and, and I can bring it out every now and then, but it's not the thing that runs my life and I don't treat Jesus as King of Kings. The most persistent image in the book of Revelation is the image of a throne. 47 times that word gets used, throne. Imagine how you have read it as a first century Christian, surrounded by the powerful images of Rome and of Roman worship. Temples and festivals and rituals and icons and manufactured miracles are everywhere, surrounded by threat and by pressure constantly reminded that you are on the margins, you're not significant. Does that feel a bit relatable? But then you read this, there is a king who is on his throne. And he has overcome death. And he reigns over the kings of the earth. He reigns over Caesar. Don't worry too much about Caesar. Don't worry too much about the government. Don't worry about which party is in too much. They are under a good king. He reigns over every king and government under Caesar. He reigns over every king and government before Caesar. He reigns over every king and government after Caesar. And he loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood far from the margins. The King of Kings has made us a kingdom to reign with him. And he has made us priests to bring the presence of God into a world that is distant from God. From heaven's perspective, we're right in the middle, looking in on the throne of God. I'm skipping ahead. And he's coming with the clouds. You might be on the margins according to this world and destined to be crushed, destined to be forgotten, but things are not as they seem. Revelation calls us to live according to the unseen truth of the reign of Jesus Christ. And that is a call we desperately need to hear today. Would you, would you pray with me? Jesus, Saviour, Alpha and Omega, beginning and end, the first and the last, who was and who is and who is to come. You are King and you alone. We thank you, Lord, that you have made us a kingdom and priests. We thank you, Lord, that by your blood you have freed us from our sins and you love us. Lord, I want to pray for anyone hearing this who doesn't know your love. 
that even as we approach this book of Revelation, they would be able to come to know the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords who reigns forever and his love for them. That they would be able to trust in you. That they would be able to turn from sin and from running from you and run to you. Because there is none other. There is no other king who reigns. Lord, lead us as a people in deeper into trusting you as we look at the images of this book, as we understand the truth that you have to give to us here. Help us, Lord, not to just understand it in our heads, but, Lord, to be moved in our hearts and changed in our lives. Let us be a people who conquer by the testimony of Jesus Christ, even not loving our lives even unto death. Make us a people pure and without compromise. Make us like you, Jesus. We pray it in your beautiful name, our Saviour and our God. Amen.